It was a spring morning many years ago, and the sun was shining, and the birds were singing, and the trees were budding, and it was baseball season. And I was in my car with my then two-and-a-half, maybe three-year-old child strapped into the car seat in the middle in the back. And the two of us were just tooling along the road on this beautiful day, heading over to do a little shopping at a local store when all of a sudden it happened. I never saw it coming. A car speeding 35, 40 miles an hour from this side T-boned us. The car I was in spun, its wheels locked on the pavement, and then it flipped, and then it flipped, and it went over and over two and a quarter time until we were resting on our side. The sound of, of shattering glass, of twisting steel, uh, there for a moment, and then there was utter silence. And I lay there on my side, uh, feeling the blood coming down the side of my face with the most awful silence I can ever imagine until it was finally broken by the blessed sound of my child crying. And I knew he was alive. It doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always end that way. It must have seemed inconceivable to Jairus what was happening to his family that day. Maybe he had never imagined that his little daughter would go to the edge of the roof. He just took his eye off of her for a moment, and that was all. Or perhaps he had warned her many, many times about not going out into the road when she heard the sound of the Roman chariots coming. Or perhaps he had never, ever meant, meant to strike her so hard when she talked back to him that particular morning. But now, whatever happened, the scriptures aren't clear, he's desperate. And we can hear the agony every parent understands in his voice as he pleads with Jesus, help, my little daughter is dying. Or consider one of the other people who comes to Jesus on that particular day in the story we read in Mark chapter 5. The Bible says she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. We can only imagine that having an affliction like that meant that she got up every single day without the stuff of life in her. Her energy sapped the simple tasks of daily living, an enormous drain on her in every single sense. The honor or the dishonor of her illness likely denied her the comfort of fellowship with other people. In the Hebrew society, there was a feeling that if you suffered from this kind of thing, it might be a curse from God. It was certainly a sign that you were ritually unclean. You couldn't come to a fellowship like this one and find company or help of any kind. You simply needed to do life on your own. And she had done life on her own for so long, for so very long, she had sought out the help of medicine, and we're told she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, had spent all that she had, and yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. What does a believer in an all-powerful, all-loving God say to that father or to that woman? 
What does a believer in an all-powerful, all-loving God say to any of the, the parents and the people up in Kalamazoo, Michigan today, or in any one of the other sites around the world experiencing the aching affliction of evil, sin, and suffering? What do we say to the people who cry through the night, who voice uh, from their throats the deep agony, the why God that is spoken so often by so many in so many places in our world? What does a Christian reply to these questions in the face of the inevitable evil when the innocents have been slaughtered, the disease strikes, the wicked seem to be prospering. If, as the scriptures seem to suggest, this creation is meant to be a reflection of an all-powerful and all-loving God, then why are there so many cracks in that creation? Is it God's fault? Is the evil we experience God's fault? Certainly at times, we wonder if it is. Writing about the ravages of war, H.G. Wells famously said, If I thought there was an omnipotent God who looked down on battles and deaths and all the waste and horror of this war and was able to prevent these things, if he was doing these things to amuse himself, I would spit in his empty face. And if truth be told, if that is who God is, who of us would not feel tempted to spit in what we would read as an empty face. And yet, this is not who God is. And this notion that that God is able to prevent uh, the evil that is going on, and that in some sense he is callous towards it, is a notion that belongs perhaps to the pagan, the Greek and Roman mythological gods who so capriciously just allow suffering. It does not belong to the character of the God we read about in the Bible. In fact, that notion that evil is God's fault is one of evil's own most pernicious lies. Last week we began a conversation about evil to understand what it is, how it came about, how it works, how we might respond to it. And I want to continue that conversation with you today in this particular dimension of life that has to do with the effect of evil, sin, death, on suffering. And I want to lay down just a few more basic principles to add on to the ones that Tracy supplied last week as we think about these things. First of all, let me be very clear that God does not cause evil in the sense of planning it for us, in the sense of, um, of dangling us over it. God does not act in that way. On the contrary, the Bible says that God grieves over evil. God aches over the pattern and the damage done by evil, the way Jesus weeps over the corruption of Jerusalem, the way he weeps over the death of Lazarus. God grieves evil. God hates evil, the Bible says. He hates it the way he abhors uh, anything that robs his creation and his creatures from the flourishing that he intended for it 
God hates evil, and he fights evil. He goes to war against evil. He throws himself into the battle against evil with his entire body, as we see upon the cross, even sacrificing his own life's blood to to redeem people from the grip of evil. And God enlists his followers in that struggle too. One of the marks of being a follower of this God, the biblical God, is that we are committed to to struggling against evil, against sin and injustice, and against all of the other faces of the evil one. But that begs the question that is still on the mind of many of us here today, and certainly the people we know in the other environments of our life. If God is this seriously opposed to evil, then why does he allow us to struggle and to suffer (laughs) as we so obviously are doing. Isn't this what we're really wondering about when we ask if evil is really God's fault? Well, I cannot solve this question for you entirely today. I wish I could wrap it up in neat little bows, but this very question has been at the heart of the experience of people of faith all throughout history. In fact, the Bible itself is full of Individuals, faithful people who shake their fist at the heavens sometimes and say, How long, O Lord, why, O God, have you forsaken me? And I'm not going to be able to to solve the anguish that we will still feel, perhaps, in the face of these kinds of circumstances as they touch our lives and that of our world. But I want to throw out today just a few perspectives that may help moderate for us this experience of suffering. First of all, I want to suggest to you that some of what we experience as evil or unwarranted suffering has to do with the fundamental nature of the creation itself. It has to do with the legal nature of the physical world that we live in. Because the world that God has given us is a physical one, not a mystical one, it has certain properties to it. God, I suppose, could have given us a a misty world, a a non-physical world, a wispy world. Uh, but, But God has given us this physical world in which we are able to feel the touch of a hand and the taste of chocolate. I had a cream, vanilla cream cookie yesterday. I can't forget how good that was. God has given us this physical world in which we have these touches and tastes and the smell of perfume and the sound of music and the sight of a sunset and all of these physical things are blessings that most of us, I'm going to guess, would be loath to give up. Yet a necessary and wonderful part of having a physical world is its law-abiding nature. You can count on there being certain stability to life because of the rules, the, the laws of physics and acoustics and chemistry and biology and so forth. And these laws do not change capriciously, and that's a very good thing. That too is a great blessing in itself. It's a gift of God's love, but there's a catch to it. And here's the catch. The very same physical law by which a mother can keep a 
a baby carriage from rolling out into the street. That same ability to hold it, to stop it, means that when that car comes down the road and T-bones you on the side, there are going to be physical consequences to that reality. The very same law of gravity by which Jairus' daughter can go tripping out, strolling across the roof to play on a particular day and be assured that she's not going to suddenly, capriciously fly off into space because gravity suddenly has suspended itself. That same law means that if she steps out too far, she's over that edge with potentially disastrous consequences. The very same laws of radiation that pop the popcorn you maybe have enjoyed last night as you watched Netflix can, in a very different set of circumstances, cause a gene to mutate and to create the disease that pops the bubble of life for you or somebody you love. If we are to have a physical world, then we can't have the good that comes with that without the risk of the bad. We cannot have our cake and eat it too in that sense. There are times when the suffering that we experience as evil is simply the outworking of that physical world. Uh, But there are times when the suffering that we experience as evil is, is the result of the volitional nature of our moral world. I know that's a mouthful, but let me try and describe what I mean by that. C.S. Lewis expresses it this way. The sin, both of men and of angels, was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will. The sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of the angel Lucifer, was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will. Free will, though it makes evil possible is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. I'm reminded of that a lot. I have a 17-year-old. I'm reminded of the two-edged sword of free will. The teenage years are what I call the cat years of parenting. I used to parent a dog. My children were dogs. They were always happy to see me when I got home. And then they became cats. And they were just off someplace. They came back when they needed food or money to pay for food. And very occasionally, they would come and just rub up against me by surprise. And I had to be ready for it. And he still does. Surprisingly come to me, throw his arms around me. And say, I love you, Dad. And it wouldn't mean anything near as much if he was doing it robotically. It means so much to me because I know he's choosing it. He's choosing that affection. What a glorious gift free will is. Would we want God to give us a world in which people were not morally free to love, to serve, where and when we chose. Most of us, I think, would respond, no, we would not want a world where that will was taken away. But this means we also have a world 
in, in which individuals can make choices uh, they, that are devastating choices that make the wicked prosper, that make the righteous suffer, at least for a season. The same moral freedom by which a physician could have helped that hemorrhaging woman, maybe, is the same freedom that could lead him to give her sugar pills and just pocket her money. You see that? The same freedom that gives Jairus the liberty to give his daughter an affectionate pat of encouragement is the same free will that could result in him striking her abusively. By the same law of moral freedom, Lucifer, the great prince of angels, could have used his amazing capacities to encourage human beings to live into the full potential of the garden. Or he could use that freedom to encourage human beings to live life on their own terms instead of God's terms. And drive them into the darkness. The same law of freedom. Moral freedom. Lewis goes on to say God saw this. God of course understood this potential. But he saw that from a world of free creatures. Even if they fell. He could work out a deeper happiness. And a fuller splendor. Than any world of creatures that work like machines would permit. So God took the risk. He took the risk and is still at work for good despite all the evil that our tragic, foolish, selfish, stupid choices bring upon us. So evil comes as a result of the physical nature of, 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 of this world that we have, the rule-abiding, the law-abiding nature of a physical world. It comes about in part because of the volitional nature of our moral world. And, And a third source of struggle or suffering that comes about for us is because of the relational nature of our social world. Uh, I'll take you back to that moment in the car, right? I'm lying on my side. You know, I am suffering in that moment, not because of the physical injury done to me. Why am I suffering in that moment? Because of my terror and agony over what I think might have just happened to this child. That that suffering is because of the overwhelming good of the relational connection that I have with my child. Relationships are our greatest source of joy and meaning. But if we are open to loving, then we are also open to losing. I think kids are actually internal organs made external for a while. You know, it feels like that. And we're so vulnerable to what could go wrong in their life. But would any gyrus amongst us want to trade in the relationship we've had with our daughter or our son in order to spare us from the pain of possibly losing him or her? Would we, would we trade in the relationship? Would any of us who have ever hemorrhaged uh, from, the, from the heart even ever want to trade in uh, the, the capacity to love somebody else in order to keep us safe and secure from all pain? The ecstasy of love, the agony of loss are different sides of the same coin of what we call relational wealth. 
And, and in fact, it's often because of this uh, wonderful and precarious, vulnerable connection with other people and what we feel for them, it's often that that makes us rise up to fight against evil, to protect relationships, and to extend the good. Are you starting to see why God, as all-powerful as he is, cannot easily spare us from the touch of evil and pain and suffering? Unless you would prefer the capricious horror or the stagnant safety of a non-legal, non-volitional, non-relational kind of existence, if that's your preference, the capriciousness or the stagnance of that, if you would, unless you want that, you're stuck with living in a world where God cannot spare us from pain without removing the very physical, social, moral framework that is the source of such blessing that is so very good about the creation. God is surely powerful enough to create an alternative kind of reality, but he is far too all-loving to try. There will come a day when he overwhelms utterly the downsides of evil. And why he tarries in ultimately doing this is a secret that belongs to him. I know that the story is told of a young man who went to a fortune teller. He wanted to know what the future would look like for him. He was told he would be absolutely miserable until age 37. Until age 37, he said? But then something good starts to happen to me and things begin to work out and the fortune teller says, nope, you're going to be miserable long after that too. How's that good news, he says. Oh, by then you'll be used to it. I don't think we ever get used to it. I don't think we ever get used to suffering. And that's why the, the, the perspectives that I'm giving you today aren't a final solution for you, I know. The Bible, however, never gives us a complete answer to all the questions we ask or that its own figures ask. The Bible never advances a formal theodicy, which is a a $10 word that, that means a defense of God's goodness. The Bible doesn't give us a complete defense of God's goodness along the lines that I've even just given to you today. The scripture simply states the reality. In this world you will suffer, says Jesus. In this world you will suffer. John 16, verse 33, worth memorizing. In this world you will suffer, but be brave. For I have overcome this world. Stay with me. You will ultimately overcome this world. So the scripture simply states, you're living in a world now where there's a snake in the grass. And he's going to do some damage. You're living in a world where there are cracks in the creation wrought by sin that God did not want to see put in place in the first place, but have come about because of the goodness of the freedoms and the rules that he has established. And in the meantime, before that final day when I make all things new, says Jesus, in the meantime, Christ says to us, as he says to Jairus in this story, do not be afraid, just believe. Just believe. What are we to believe? What is it we are to believe? I'm convinced, as I read further in the text, 
We are to believe in his capacity to take even that which is broken and use it for his redeeming purposes. And I dare you to believe that for yourself because this challenge goes to one final thing about suffering. I think it helps to remember. It has to do with the developmental nature of our spiritual lives. I think back to a conversation that I had um, some years ago with a dear friend of mine. I think I've told her story once before. Her name is Barbara. Barbara was a brilliant, brilliant young lawyer, top of her class at Yale Law School, uh, who, while traveling in a taxi cab in New York City one day, uh, through no fault of her own, uh, riding in that cab, no seatbelt on, found herself with a driver who was irresponsible. He made a choice. He tried to cross through a yellow light. He timed it late. Traffic surged from one side. He swerved. He lost control. He hit a bank of poles. Uh, He emerged fairly unscathed. Uh, Baruch emerged brain damaged and physically disfigured. Uh, And she would never go back to life as she knew it before. Barbara was able to talk still. She was able to reason still. What emerged in her was a rather remarkable kind of childlike uh, purity of perspective. And I remember sitting with her on one occasion, and I just asked her if she did not feel like raging against the universe, against God, for what had happened to her, uh, this accident that had left her brain and her body so badly scarred. And uh, here's what Barbara said to me. Uh, Barbara was a very devout Catholic girl, and uh, she said to me, you know, I ask God why less and less. I have asked him that. I ask him why less and less. Not because I don't think there's an answer. I imagine God has an answer, but I'm not sure I'm going to get the answer satisfactorily, fully, myself. So I don't ask the why question so much. The important question now seems to be not why, but what next, she said. The question for me is what next? What does God want me to do now? How can this be used now to help others? And, and I sat there feeling like I was just, I'm just the infant on the spiritual journey in the presence of somebody for whom suffering had done something amazing that I didn't yet have in my life. I thought, how Jesus-like, this idea that in my suffering, Maybe it can be used to, to redeem others, to help others. And in Barbara's case, it happened. She turned that suffering into advocacy for seatbelt legislation in the state of Nebraska. And, and she became the, the champion of that and, and changed the laws of Nebraska where now if you ride in a taxi cab, you have a seatbelt. How many hundreds of lives have been spared or saved from calamity because Barbara took her suffering and asked, what's next, Lord? I had a professor when I was back at Princeton Seminary named Diogenes Allen who put it like this. The suffering inflicted on a person is not a complete event. God does not give evil that kind of power. It has some range, but it doesn't have power to ultimately define reality. God doesn't 
Suffering inflicted is not a complete event. A complete or total event must include a person's response to the suffering. And it is this response which determines whether the pain becomes merely another crack in creation or instead becomes a corridor through which someone receives the grace of God or allows their life to become a channel through which God's grace can move into the lives of others. What an awesome perspective that is. How often has that proven true in history? You know, it was in a time of incredible suffering that a man named Bill W. found himself at the bottom of a bottle and at the end of himself. Nowhere left to go. And it was there that he met the God who said to him, Bill, what's next? And admitting that he was utterly powerless on his own, he turned himself over to the higher power of that grace, and there began the movement we know as Alcoholics Anonymous that God has used to redeem how many countless lives as a result of the suffering that Bill W. went into through his choices in this case or the sin or the evil or the disease in his body. It was when Cassandra Ma, a friend of this church, took her own experience of injustice and asked what's next that her suffering at the hands of evil was transformed into the ministry called Reclaim 13, which is now rescuing kids from human trafficking and showing them a new life. This is why the Coptic Christian Church in Egypt, though it is suffering at the hands of terrorism in just unthinkable ways, week in and week out, is being looked to by Christians all over the world today because of their extraordinary ability in the midst of their suffering to keep turning it over to God, saying, Lord, how can this be used? How can our perseverance be used as a witness and an encouragement to others. It's why while languishing in prison at the hands of evil, Aung San Suu Kyi became a woman able to free the spirit of the Burmese nation. She could have been self-pitying, and yet she turned it over again and again. How can this be used? Suffering can certainly leave behind shattered people. It does every day. But suffering can also show the power of God to shape saints who surrender that suffering to him. What is going to be your story and my story in response to the touch of evil, sin, suffering upon us? Paul Claudel explains it this way, and with this I'll close today. Christ did not come to do away with suffering. If you came into this church today thinking you signed up on a different contract, full disclosure, Christ did not come to do away with suffering. He did not come to explain it. We're going to have questions all the way to the other side. Jesus came to fill suffering with his presence. That's what he did. He came to fill it, to show us we're not alone in it, and that this is not the end of things, even if, for some of us, it is the end, at least according to our sight. Jesus is encouraging us to not get so much stuck in the why of evil, in the who to blame of pain. He's calling us to move on to this question, what next, Lord? What next 
How can you, by your grace, use this in me, through me, for the sake of others? So let the cracks in creation that sin and evil has wrought become a corridor through which you receive the one who comes walking with wounds in his hands and who comes to you and says, even today, even now, even to you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but believe, for I am with you always to the end of the age until I make all things completely new. Would you please pray with me? Great God, we pray that you who are the ultimate source of strength, would give us a willingness to let our suffering serve the cause of becoming more spiritually mature rather than becoming simply paralyzed by it. Give us confidence, God, that there is indeed a power behind and in this mysterious universe who will yet bring victory to the best over the worst who will yet vindicate the faith of those who have believed in you. For we put our trust in you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.